All right. John chapter 2, if you would turn there in your Bibles. After the first service, um, it was a blessing because I, I had two different folks from the first service um, talk to me about open doors uh, in the lives of their loved ones. You know, sometimes as Christians, it can be very, very discouraging when you share the gospel and you kind of hit a brick wall. They're not interested, you know. Uh, but I, I talked to a, a brother after the first service and he was so excited. He was just sharing how the word of God has just really come alive for him. And um, he was sharing about an opportunity, you know, that the Lord has just given him with one of his family uh, members, uh, relative. And, you know, I'll tell you, we need to hear stuff like that. Because too often, it's like our faith is just kind of this dull thing. We just kind of come in and, you know, church is like the highlight of, of our walk with Jesus. And it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't. Another uh, lady was sharing with me, I saw her and her husband coming out of, um, uh, on their way out of Home Depot, and I'm in there a few times a week just picking up things, and so we're kind of in the, the little entrance there, and we're talking, and her husband, I haven't seen him here for a while, and his breathing was really labored, and I said, boy, you don't sound good, you know, and so they were kind of sharing a little bit, and so I said, well, let's just pray, you know, so I prayed for him, and um, and they went on their way. But um, his wife today said, she said, you know, Pastor Dan, I was, first of all, she said, thank you. That was the Lord, you know. I mean, to kind of run into you and all this and everything. And she said um, that she had been sharing the gospel with a relative of hers and very resistant, standoffish. But then she had made the comment after we saw each other in the store and she said, yeah, we saw our pastor, and he prayed, you know, for us right there in Home Depot. And the relative's response was, that's how it should be. And so, you know, any little bit, these open doors, people, and here's the thing, because if this is the extent of our Christianity coming to church, most people are going to opt out. I mean, it's like boring, you know. But if this is really the time when God's people come together, we study his word and worship corporately together, but then we go out and we're doing the things that the Lord has called us to do, that's when Christianity is lived the way it's meant to be lived. And that's when the excitement of Christianity is experienced. We come back. So gatherings like this, we're able to share stories, you know, or could you please pray for me? This situation is happening and everything. I think sometimes... There's so much, you know, it's like the negative uh, news all the time, you know. And it's good to come together as God's people and to remind each other about the good news we have in Christ. So let me read our text and then we'll get into it. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cord, that's radical, 
he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money. And over, can you imagine their money going all over the place? I just picture them scrambling on the floor, you know, trying to get all those shekels and everything. Or actually, it's probably the Roman coins they're trying to get. But anyway, it says, overturned the, the tables. Uh, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. A quote from Psalm 69, 9. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up, raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was risen from the dead, and this is John's commentary on these things, when he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, and when they, when they saw, not end, but when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So, Father, we pray that you'd please teach us, that you'd please give us life application, truths that we can apply to our lives today, Lord, as your followers. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, um, John tells his readers that it was Passover. Passover, of course, was the time, uh, still is the time, that the Jewish people, Hebrew people, remember the exodus of their people from the land of Egypt. They had gone into Egypt. Remember, there was a famine in the land. They go into the uh, land of Egypt. There's 70 members in all, you know, good-sized family. When they leave, 400-plus years later, you know, there's a million or two more, you know. And, and so, of course, you read the Exodus account and we know what transpired there. But they ate that meal in haste before the Exodus and they took the blood of the, of the little lamb and they sprinkled it on the door and it really kind of gives the image of a cross there. And if the blood was sprinkled on the, the doorpost and the, the mantle, then the angel of death as he goes through the land of Egypt, you know, striking the firstborn uh, of all of Egypt, he would pass over them. So that's where you get the, the, the word Passover. So it was Passover. And Jesus goes up to Passover. Why would he do that? Well, because every Hebrew had to go to pass, Passover for at least three of the festivals. And three festivals were the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of tabernacles and the feast we know the feast of passover was held on the 14th day of nisan and and so it's a little confusing from our perspective because we don't uh you know we have a set calendar they use the moon 
So it would fall into the time frame of March or April. So around this, this time frame, you know, that we're in right now. So they go up there. And, uh, and Jesus goes into the temple. And it, it doesn't mean that he went into the sanctuary. You, you guys know, I always point this out because as Christians, we think of, you know, uh, you come to Calvary Chapel and, and I go into the church. This is the church. In one sense, maybe to help us understand this, maybe to look at, you come to Calvary Chapel Oak Harbor, and as you pull up, you're in the church, as you're in the parking lot. And then you come through the courtyard. Maybe you have children, so you're going to come through the courtyard. You're in the courtyard of the church, but you're in the church uh, of Calvary Chapel Oak Harbor. That's kind of like it was for them. There was a sanctuary and of course, none of the people were allowed in the sanctuary at any time whatsoever. Only the priests would go in there. But then there were the courts. And you would have the court of the Gentiles, which was really the furthest court out. Then you'd have the court of the women, and you'd have the court of the you know, certain age groups, and you'd have these different courts. And so Jesus, he makes his way into Jerusalem. And I was kind of trying to paint a picture um, for the first service, if you've ever been to Israel, there's no doubt that um, your first your first sight of the Temple Mount, it's almost breathtaking. Even though today there's no temple, there hasn't been a temple there for a long time. What you see there today is you see a mosque. There's many mosques on the Temple Mount, but what you see is the Dome of the Rock. So you see that golden dome up there. And, but it is a stunning thing. You drive into Jerusalem if you're touring. You drive in and you come around and you see the Temple Mount. And I, I think most of us are surprised by how large it is. It's absolutely huge. But at the time that Jesus was on the earth, of course, there was the Temple of God. And it would have been this temple, this building, this structure, taller than any other structure, of course. The white stone glistening in the sunlight, they would have made their way from the Mount of Olives down through the Kidron Valley. They would have entered through the East Gate that's been blocked up. If you've seen pictures, modern day pictures of the uh, Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you know that the gate there, the East Gate, has been blocked off. It was blocked off by the Turks a long, long time ago. And they also made a, um, a cemetery right outside the East Gate. Uh, you know, they don't believe in God or anything or the, the Lord, but they're trying to make sure that the Messiah, no way the Messiah would step on a grave to go in to the east gate to the Temple Mount. But he will. The scriptures tell us that he will. Ezekiel tells us that. But they would make their way up the Kidron Valley. They would come through the gate. And the first court they got to was the Gentile gate. So this was a place where Gentile seekers and worshipers could come. The Gentiles knew that they could not go beyond this point. In fact, they, it was posted uh, along the wall there. Any Gentiles beyond this point will be put to death. So this was a very serious thing. So this was their spot. They had their own spot, the Gentile uh, court there. And this is where all of these things that we're reading about, that we're seeing in our text, were set up. All of the livestock were set up there. The money changers' tables that were set up in the court of the Gentiles. So I want you to think about this because sometimes if we don't consider all of the facts, 
we could read a text and just kind of come to our own conclusion that's probably not the correct conclusion. Rather than the Hebrew people as the light, really, at that time in the world, they were the only ones worshiping and serving the true God. Rather than being a light to these Gentiles that would make their way to the feast, you know, to the temple there, rather than going into the court of the Gentiles and, and um, really witnessing to them about Yahweh, instead they made it a place of merchandise. In one sense, if we understand this correctly, in one sense, they were saying, you don't matter. We don't want you here anyway. In fact, we'll just kind of fill up your court with livestock and money you know, tables and, and so on and so forth. We're going to just kind of take over this area. So Jesus comes in. He sees this happening. He makes a whip, and he drives out the money changers. Now, guys, we know from the Bible that this wasn't the only time that Jesus did this. He did this at the beginning of his public ministry. He did this at the end of his public ministry. Remember, right after he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he did the same thing, drove out the money changers, you know. Uh, what, three years later. So he drives them out. He overturns the tables. we got to wonder, what was going on there? Why'd they have all those animals there anyway? And the money changers, what was that all about? Well, we know from the law that a sacrificial animal, so it had to be a clean sacrificial animal. You couldn't, you couldn't offer, um, you know, a camel or a snake, or a lizard, or a fish, you know. You, it has to be a clean animal. And we're told what a clean and an unclean animal is. has nothing to do with hygiene. It has to do with the ceremonial uh, cleanness. Um, that the animals were there for sacrifice. So if you had pilgrims coming, you know, maybe you live way up, in the Galilee and you make your way to Jerusalem for Passover and uh, maybe you didn't do your due diligence. Remember, every Hebrew family was to have a little lamb that was a year old. They were to bring their lamb. That lamb was to be raised in their home, almost like a pet, you know, and then they bring it. So it was something that the whole family would be able to identify with, you know. The kids would play with the little lamb and feed the little lamb, understanding that one day this little lamb is going to be offered to the Lord as a remembrance of what the Lord did long ago to their forefathers in the land of Egypt. And so we understand why the animals were there. Um, the money changers, what was that all about? Well, every Hebrew male that was uh, 20 years of age had to pay a temple tax. So he would have to pay about a half a shekel of uh, temple tax. The problem is, is that Rome was ruling at that time over Israel. And so uh, you could not take a Roman coin and, and pay your temple tax with a Roman coin. You couldn't do that because on the Roman coin would be the image of an emperor, and the emperors were worshipped by the people as a god. So in one sense, it would be like idolatry or sacrilege to do that. And so the money changers were there to take your Roman coins and to exchange them into shekels, things that you could actually offer there, pay your uh, tax. 
So you can imagine, you know, maybe people would show up. Maybe they did their due diligence and they've come and they've got their little lamb in tow and they show up there. And because they've made this such a den of robbers, in fact, that's what Jesus called it at his second cleansing, a den of robbers, quoting Jeremiah, the prophet, that, um, that maybe you show up with your little lamb and uh, the inspector comes over, I don't know, maybe he has a, a little piece of charcoal hidden in his hand and he just kind of rubs it on the, the back end of that little lamb and then points out, boy, I'm sorry, you probably didn't notice this when you left your home all the way up in Galilee, but this lamb is blemished. You can't offer this lamb. But I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, you could trade that lamb in, and we'll give you a good price on an on a unblemished lamb. So you're between a rock and a hard place. And you say, well, if that's what I have to do, I guess that's what I have to do. So they would do that. And of course, you could imagine the, the, you know, the thievery that was going on. You know, whenever we uh, go to purchase something, usually like a big item, like a car or something, don't we always feel like we've been robbed? <laughs> over leaving, you know. Even when we think, we, oh, we got a great deal. And then you kind of look over the fine print and you go, oh, gosh, yeah. I guess it wasn't that great of a deal, you know. But the money changers, you know, I can imagine them saying, listen, uh, we'll change your money, so you need money to put into the offering. This is the exchange rate. Have you ever traveled different parts of the world where the American dollar is not accepted? Most places, the American American dollar is accepted. That's coming to an end, by the way. That ties into Bible prophecy. We'll talk about that some other time. But usually, you exchange your money. I remember years ago, right after communism fell, uh, I went to Bulgaria, communist country. They were still removing uh, Lenin and you know all the communist leaders. And uh, um, we went there and I wanted to exchange some money, and the fellow that we went with that traveled to Bulgaria quite a bit, did mission work there, we were there to do mission work. He said, uh, just exchange like uh, $50, 50 American dollars. I said, $50? I mean, we're gonna be here two weeks. And he goes, I, I think it'll be fine. So gave the money exchange to uh, $50, you know, and they gave me a stack like this of um, like Monopoly money. I mean, it was like the size of Monopoly money. It looked like it was printed on Monopoly paper. I mean, it was just, a, you know. But you could imagine how they would have upped the price, you know. So people were getting ripped off. And you know what? Jesus doesn't like it when his people are getting ripped off. He doesn't like it when his people are being taken advantage of. I think of the charlatans that have infiltrated the church in many places these men who are living high off the hog, man, they're living a life of, of uh, prosperity. They are living like movie stars, you know. You know, they're, they're known for their, you know, $5,000 tennis shoes or their Bentley car or, you know, they've got a, you know, 1,600 uh, or 1,000, not 100, 16,000 square foot home here and then they have a home here and they have a home here. And you're looking at these people and say, these are ministers? You know what a minister is, don't you? A minister is a servant. These are servants? Servants of God? 
And I'll tell you, God doesn't like it when his people are ripped off. Many people today are ripped off in many churches because they're told a lie. The lie is, if you want, and it's all based upon greed, because they know that the human nature wants more and more and more. The human nature is wicked. The human heart is wicked. And the human nature just wants more of whatever they could get, even the redeemed human nature, (laughs) if they're not careful. And so they play off of that, you know. You sow money into my ministry, and you'll get a hundredfold back, you know. And so often people are giving their last ten bucks to some minister that could care less. He's not praying a prayer for you. He's not doing anything for you. He's just simply ripping off God's people. So Jesus comes in. He sees all this. He's angry. He drives them all out. In fact, guys, in Malachi chapter 3, Malachi prophesied about this happening. In Malachi chapter 3, the first three verses says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Actually, I left a little bit off of that verse, so that's about midway in verse 1, I think. So it says, suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, this is speaking of Jesus, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi or the priest and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So Malachi prophesies about it. Jesus fulfills the prophecy. It would have been uh, a radical thing. And it was a radical thing. And of course, it disturbed the people. So the authorities come forward and they say, uh, give us a sign. You know, you're doing this. By what authority are you doing this? Who do you think you are? I don't know what was behind their thinking, but they, they asked for a sign. What sign do you show us since you do these things? And so Jesus, as if driving them out, fulfilling Malachi's prophecy, if that wasn't a good enough sign, he gives them another sign. And so the sign that he gives them is destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, guys, I want you to remember that this was the thing. Can we turn down the heat a little bit? Um, I know you're comfortable, but some are getting too comfortable. (laughs) I only have you for a few minutes here, and I'm going to keep you alive one way or another. Um, But uh, where was I? I got distracted there. Oh, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will rise it up. Now, guys, it's very important that when we read the Bible, that we carefully read the Bible. Because remember, this was the thing that really, I need to be careful how I phrase this. They wanted to kill him, the religious leaders. We see this early on in Jesus' ministry. They didn't like the things he was saying. They wanted to kill him. They were just looking for an opportune time. We see toward the end of the gospel accounts that they bring in false witnesses. But their their testimonies, they don't line up. One says this, another says that. And so they had to throw those things out because you need some trustworthy witnesses. Finally, the thing that stuck was this. He said, 
I will destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. But did he say that? No. He said, destroy this temple. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple, and on the third day, I will rise it up. So there's the I. The I is, I will raise it up. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He simply said, just destroy this temple, and on the third day, I will rise it up. Now, guys, remember that this is, this is the only thing they had that they thought, well, this is it. This is, this is what we've got. This is the accusations. I think we've gotten enough people to testify to the fact that he said this. Do you know that Jesus, even as he was hanging on the cross in Matthew's account, we're told, let me read it, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. Jesus never said that. Now John gives us a commentary on what Jesus was speaking about. Look at verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Because it's important, again, as you're reading the Bible, it's important to read it. Jesus wasn't saying to them, come on, guys, I wasn't talking about this temple. I was talking about this temple. Jesus didn't say that. John, who's writing his gospel account, after, long after Jesus went to the cross, Jesus was resurrected, Jesus ascended into heaven, long after the ascension of Christ, John is writing this, says this is what Jesus said, this was a sign that he gave them. But I want you to understand, he wasn't speaking of the temple, he was speaking of his body. And when he, when he had been risen from the dead, then, John says, his own personal, then we remembered what he said. We remembered. You know, guys, this wasn't the only time that Jesus said such things. Of course, um, we see similar things in the other gospel accounts but in John's gospel John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18 it says therefore Jesus speaking therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again no one takes it from me but I lay it down of myself I Jesus says I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again this commandment I have received from my father end of quote so this is a bold claim. You know, guys, um, a lot of people claim a lot of things, but, you know, <laughs> if you can't back it up, it's just that. It's just words. Jesus makes a claim, and, of course, he comes through. He backs it up. So they're thinking one thing. Jesus is speaking of another thing. Have you figured it out, followers of Jesus? when you're reading the scriptures, that there were many times that Jesus was saying one thing and people were thinking of something completely different. I mean, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand that Jesus, you know, he, he, many times he spoke in parables. He spoke in such a way to kind of a, attract, you know, the, the mind that's open, but also to, if you will, distract the one that's not, you know. It, the parables almost became a hindrance for those who would not, believe would not receive but the parables were also used in a way that they would kind of draw people in those who 
would believe and did believe in the Lord. Remember toward the end of Jesus' ministry, as he was speaking to his disciples, on one account they said to him, Lord, you're speaking plainly now. It's like, we, we get it now. You're, you're speaking plainly. And it's because he was speaking to his disciples. He was speaking to his followers. But to those outside of that, things were spoken in parables. So they're thinking of the temple, and they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Okay, so I want you to know that this construction project, which was a very lengthy construction project, um, it was began by Herod the Great. We know that Herod was a, a great builder. You know, I don't think he was out there with chisel in hand, but he was surely the designer and you know the architect and the kind of the power behind it. But he began not building the temple from the ground up, but but actually restoring the temple that had been there. So the temple that was there, even during the Babylonian captivity, remember the children of Israel came back to the temple and they began to make uh, improvements and you know fix things that were broken down or burnt down and, and that type of thing. So he was, if you will, remodeling the temple. So he begins his work, 20 BC, and it's not finished until AD 64. And of course, it's not finished by him because he's dead. He's gone. So it's finished by Herod Agrippa. So the temple was not even completed when Jesus was saying these things. So I don't know what it looked like. I don't know if there was like scaffolding all around, you know, and they're, they're working on this. It's been, you know, 40 plus years, the project, 44 years, uh, or 46 years, the project's been going and, you know, it hasn't even been completed. In fact, this is what's so amazing about this, is that the temple was not completed until 34 years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended. That's a long time. And then six years after it was completed, the Romans leveled it to the ground, just as Jesus said would happen. Remember what Jesus said? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So here's another sign. I mean, Jesus is the one who told his disciples that this would be the case, not one stone. And today, if you go to Israel, as I mentioned earlier, no temple. Temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem for the Jews. I mean, they're chomping at the bit. They're ready to do it. When they do it, it will happen very quickly. Let me tell you, it's not going to take 46 years or, you know, plus. It may take... Uh, <laughs> probably not even 46 months. It'll probably be put up very, very quickly. But that's for another day. We know there has to be a temple in order for there to be the abomination that causes desolation. So, The Bible is so wonderful, guys. As you are a student of the Bible, as you're studying the scriptures, it's so exciting because the Word of God is always confirming itself. It's, it's not contradicting itself. Sometimes we think that we've stumbled upon some contradiction that no one has ever seen before, you know. And um, some people, they almost play the devil's advocate. They're always trying to find that, that one scripture that's going to prove <laughs> the whole Bible to be false. Good luck. 
Well, here's the life application. The temple was destroyed long ago. The Hebrew people still exist. God has a purpose for the Hebrew people. After the church is removed in the rapture, God's focus will once again go back to Israel. Um, The church has not replaced Israel. Israel is its own thing. The church is its own thing, entity, if you will. Um, But the Hebrew people for 2,000 years has not have not had a means of <laughs> a means of redemption so you have a you have a people guys and and I challenge you you know there's not any other group of people on the earth that has been scattered throughout the earth that have kept their language as Absorbing other languages, of course, and cultures where they were exiled or, you know, dispersed to. They kept their heritage. They kept this understanding of who they are as a people. You think of even during the Holocaust, how horrible, how horrific that was. And, uh, but, you know, the Jewish people, they are a tight-knit group. And they know who they are. And they know who they belong to. But they have had no means of atoning for their sins. Now remember, they've rejected Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our atonement. We don't depend upon sacrifices or anything like that. All of those sacrifices were just simply pointing to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the Hebrew people, they've become like many American Christians or Western Christians, you know, where it's easy to be a Christian in the West and and it's all kind of tradition and, you know, I just be a good person. And, you know, for the Jews, if you ask them, how do you atone for your sin? You know what the scriptures say, your scriptures, the Jews' scriptures, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. How do you atone for that? There is no temple. There is no means. They would say, it's our good works. No, we're good people. One day they're going to turn to Christ. They'll bow the knee. They'll confess with the tongue that Jesus is Lord. I could hardly wait for that. We should pray for the salvation of Hebrew people. One day the Lord's focus will be completely on them. The point is, the temple has been gone for a long time. But on the day of Pentecost, something miraculous took place. On the day of Pentecost, you had 120 men and women who had followed Jesus. You think of that, guys, because when you read through the gospel accounts, what do we read? A word that we read over and over and over again. Multitudes, 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 multitudes. And then it's all said and done. Jesus goes to the cross, and we're not reading about multitudes any longer. We're reading about 120, about 120. See, that's, that's not very impressive, you know. And they're waiting in the upper room. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the promise of the Father. 
The promise of the Father is when the Holy Spirit would come upon them with that dunamis power to equip them, empower them to go out and to be witnesses for Christ. So 120, there they are waiting. It's the day of Pentecost. And uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they begin to speak in other tongues. And the language that they're speaking, they had never been taught. They haven't learned the language. So that's a supernatural thing. But then you also have the supernatural thing happening with the hearers. So you have you have Jews that are gathered there from all over, all over the place. You could read the list where they're from. All over, they're there in Jerusalem. And they hear them praising God in their own dialect. And it's just mind-blowing to them. And some mock. So Peter gets up and he sets them straight. And he takes them right back to the word of God. Remember, guys, listen. If there's a practice, if there's something that Christians are doing that you do not have a biblical foundation, you are on shaky ground. Peter didn't just stand up and say, hey, guys, this is a new thing that's happening. Isn't it great? Hang on, man, this is going to be a fun ride. No, he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He went back to a biblical foundation. He says, Joel prophesied about this. That's what's happening here. And the people, as Peter was preaching Christ to them, they were convicted in their hearts and they realized that was our Messiah. And, and we crucified him. Maybe some among them were, could say, we were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. I can't believe this. It says they were cut to the heart. So that's conviction. What must we do? Believe. Believe. Repent. Believe. Turn from your unbelief. Turn in belief to the Lord. And what, what are we told? Well, we're told that 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. The point is, is this. Paul, so Paul is the apostle who never felt worthy to be an apostle. He calls himself as an apostle that was uh, born out of, uh, what's the phrase he used? Out of due season or whatever. He's Johnny come lately. He persecuted the church. He Paul could never seemed to get over the fact that he um, persecuted the church, that he put Christians to death until he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. I mean, this is something he just could not get over. Would you turn with me? Keep your hand there on John, but to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So Paul, he comes along, you know, he places his faith in the Lord, isn't it amazing that we have 13 uh, letters, epistles from Paul? We don't have that many from John or from Peter. We don't have any from Thomas. We don't have any from, from Bartholomew. We don't have, it's just amazing, you know, how the Lord used Saul of Tarsus, you know. But this is what, this is what Paul wrote in in. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll pick it up in verse 18. He says, now remember who he's writing to. He's writing to believers, okay? He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. Note the emphasis upon the body. But he who commits sexual immorality 
uh, sins against his own body. And then he says, or wrote, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, listen, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The temple's gone, but on the day of Pentecost, the Lord filled living, breathing temples. Those who have placed their faith in Christ. It's beautiful. Guys, remember, God didn't live in the temple anyway. God doesn't live in, you know, houses made by man, the hands of man. Everything was a foreshadow of Christ. Everything, absolutely everything, was a foreshadow of Christ. Everything was looking to Christ, looking ahead to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So we, according to Paul, we are, if you're a believer, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I like the fact that he emphasizes we are not our own. We've been bought at a price. Now, guys, listen, it's really important that you know your Bible because there are other groups that use biblical terminology, and if you are not paying attention, you'll just think that they're talking about the same thing you're talking about. Like the New Age movement. It sounds like such a, a, a silly title because the New Age movement is kind of like the emergent church. It's a term that no one uses any longer, but it best describes really <laughs> their philosophy. But the New Age movement that comes in many different forms, they use terms like born again. You'll hear them speaking about born again. So if you're talking to someone and they say, yes, I was really born again, you know, I was born spiritually. You need to ask questions nowadays. You need to, well, what does that mean? How did that happen? And if they don't bring Jesus up, then you know that they're talking about something else. They're speaking about some other experience. And of course, we've all heard the one about, my, this is the temple. This is my temple. Got to take care of my temple. That's why I eat so well. That's why I work out. That's why I do yoga. Got to keep, keep control of, you know, take care of the temple. That's not what he's saying. It's so much deeper than that. It is the spirit of the living God coming and taking up residence in the believer. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Jesus, he goes to the temple and it's cluttered and it's stinky and there's things there that shouldn't be there. And the fact of the matter is, even as Christians, our temple, if you will, gets cluttered with things that shouldn't be there. Stinky stuff. Stuff that needs to be driven out. So, But here's the deal. We don't have to wait for the Lord to make a whip and drive out <laughs> the bad things from our life because he's already done that. He set us free from the bondage of sin. But what we need is to be yielded to the Spirit of God. We need to be 
open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that when the Holy Spirit, as you're reading the word, as you're praying, the Holy Spirit begins to move upon your heart and maybe he says to you, you know, I really don't want you doing that. I don't want you going there. You know this is sin. You know that you're grieving me. However it may come, you know. Many times it's just kind of the conviction that comes upon our own heart or our own minds. We are, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We must be sensitive to the leading to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, it goes on, the text goes on to say that there were many who believed in him, in verse 23, many who believed in him, so that's a positive thing, but that Jesus did not commit himself to them. That's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes, isn't it confusing, guys, that you, as you read the scriptures, you kind of think, okay, so Jesus came, he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, Jesus wants people to believe in him, but you kind of get the impression when you read the gospel accounts that Jesus didn't, it was almost like he was pushing people away. I mean, obviously, Jesus could care less if people were offended by the things he was saying because the things he was saying were truth rather than he adjusting his message for those that might be easily offended. The adjustment had to happen on the side of the people. Hmm. I think, you know, we, we live in a time where we know that uh, fewer and fewer people are actually reading the Bible. It seems statistically that fewer and fewer people are reading in general. But uh, if you're a reader, man, don't ever lose that. But I'll tell you, you learn so much by reading. But as a Christian, you need to be in the Word of God. You need to be reading the Word of God. And there are a lot of Christians that don't read the Word of God. They don't know the Word of God. So they're weak. They're malnourished. Their faith is, is waning all the time. And we live in a time where, you know, things have become very easy. You know, most people, when they see the Jesus of the chosen, they love him. He says things, you know, and it's not offensive and kind of easy to swallow, and he's just kind of a good-hearted guy. And, and then when they go over to the scriptures and they see the Jesus of the Bible and they see the things that he said, sometimes they're offended by the Jesus of the Bible because he doesn't line up with the Jesus of the chosen. And if that's happening to you, man, you should be ashamed of that because we should never look at a man-made image of who Jesus is, we should go right to the source. This is God's revelation of who he is. And so as we see Jesus and we see the things he said and we see the things he's done, guys, as we go continue on in John's gospel, you know what we're going to see? We're going to see that Jesus fed a multitude of people and people really, really loved him. And they wanted to hang out with him. And wherever he went, they followed him. And they just were on his heels all the time until he began to speak things that they did not want to hear. And then they went away. To such a degree that Jesus turned to his 12 and said, do you want to depart as well? And remember, that's when Peter says, oh, Lord, you know. You're the one, <laughs> paraphrased. Where else could we go? Who else could we follow? You're the one. Guys, listen. There are, 
I think of the last day's church, according to the book of Revelation, the last day's church. You know, we have this contrast in John's, John chapter 2. We have this contrast between the first part, we looked at it last week, it was a place of celebration, it was a place of joy, it was a, it was a place where people were, uh, you know, just happy to be together, it was a place where Jesus was an invited guest, he was welcomed to the wedding, remember, contrasted by a place that was dedicated for prayer and worship where Jesus became an unwelcomed intruder. Think of the contrast. So you have a contrast between the joy of the wedding and the wrath in the temple. Wow. The last day's church. Jesus is seen outside the church at the door. Guys, prophetically speaking, that does not look good for the church. And anyone that's awake, and I'm not, I'm not trying to insult anyone, but I'm just simply saying, anyone that's awake, anyone that's reading the word of God, anyone that's aware of what's happening around us, you know that the church is not getting stronger. It's not, you know, it, it's, in fact, we are in decline I was sharing with the Wednesday night group that Nate had sent me a, a Barna uh, survey thing, and, and it was kind of like, uh, you know, church attendance, uh, Bible reading, uh, a Christian world or biblical worldview, all of these different things that Barna, you know, because they, they kind of research all of that stuff. Since COVID, and it has dropped so low. It's like 6% of people who say that they're Christians even read the Bible. 6%. That's horrible. So the church is not stronger. The church has embraced so many things. You know, can I tell you, as a pastor of a church, we'll have people and they'll say, boy, oh, I love this church. I you know, not everyone loves this church, obviously. But um, I love this church. Or I like the teaching, da, da 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 until I touch on something that they don't want to hear. Even though it's from the word of God. You know, you talk about fornication. You talk about uh, uh, pharmakia, so the use of drugs. You know, because a lot of people use drugs in the church today. A lot of people are addicted to pot. I know you can't get addicted to it, but so many people are addicted to it, and you know that you're addicted to it. That's why it's better not to even partake of it. Why be addicted to anything? But you talk about things like that, and people get uncomfortable. You talk about homosexuality, and that's a deal breaker for a lot of people, a lot of Christians. They say, oh, no, 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 Jesus never spoke about, you know, and it's like, are you reading the word of God? And people somehow, because they're not walking in the spirit, they could hear the teaching of the Bible and immediately in their minds, because they've been brainwashed. Listen, you're either being brainwashed by the world, the philosophy of the world, or your brain is being washed by the word of God. It's one or the other. But many people, they will say, they're haters. 
And I just think, man, you don't even see it. You know, guys, love. I've said it many times. I am so glad that people loved me enough when I was a non-believer to say to me unabashedly, you know what, Danny? If you died today, you're going to hell. I mean, I can't even imagine people talking like that today because we, we just put like bubble wrap around absolutely everything. And it's no wonder the people don't have a sense of urgency in the days in which we live or a sense of, yeah, maybe I'll get around to believing in Jesus eventually, you know, when I'm old and gray and, you know, or whatever. It's no wonder because there's, there's, the word of God is not being spoken from God's people. It's not being read by God's people. It's not in the hearts of God's people. And so they're able to proclaim things. The brother that I was talking about earlier that was sharing about uh, sharing the gospel with this relative, I, I'm being vague because I don't want to, you know, he talked to me, so I don't want to give too much away. But he was able to tell his relative, I love you. The Lord loves you. That's the truth of the matter. You love someone, you, you're honest with them. Anyone who lies, you know, so weird. I'm out of time. I'm always out of time. But I remember when my grandfather was dying of cancer. This is um, mid-70s. Do you know what the family secret was? Well, it wasn't a secret. Everyone knew about it, except for Grandpa. You're dying of cancer. Doesn't that seem bizarre? What? Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. You know, you're just sick, Grandpa. You just, you know, you'll, you'll pull through this. And I, I remember as, <laughs> as a teenager thinking, this is the sickest thing I've ever seen in my life, that you're lying to somebody who's dying, who obviously knows that they're dying, rather than, you know, being honest. And you know, guys, that's what we do really in Christianity. People are going to hell without Christ. But we kind of pretend like, you know, no, you're not going to hell. It's okay. Really, it's all right. It's okay. It will all work. And you just are hoping that someone else will come along and do what we're afraid to do, and that is to be honest with them and to tell them. We don't have to be rude. We shouldn't be rude when we talk to people about Jesus. We should be full of joy. But we should be serious. We should tell them. I think that's real love being manifested. So Jesus, he didn't give himself to men. He knew that, um, you know, those that uh, base their uh, faith, if it's even faith upon signs and wonders, that those things will soon go away, you know, the interest will go away. Jesus always spoke to the heart of the issue. Thinking of this illustration, I know that I'm kind of reading into this. I, I, I'm taking liberty with this. But, but if, we are the, if we've become, according to Paul, the temple of the Spirit of God, the temple of God, we've become that. Am I thinking, I'm thinking, the Holy of Holies in this temple, 
would have to be the heart. And, and the Lord is always, he's never dealing with the superficial stuff. We deal with the superficial stuff. The Lord always deals with the heart. We want to say, you got to clean up your act. You got to do this. You got to stop doing this. You got to stop doing that. I mean, this is all part of coming to faith in Christ. But, but the Lord deals with the heart. Because when the Lord has our heart, then everything else changes. You know, guys, next week we'll see Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. And he doesn't speak to Nicodemus about religion. He speaks to Nicodemus about his heart issue. The chapter after that, we're going to see Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman. So she is a, a half-breed. That's offensive, but that's how the Hebrews saw her. She's a woman who's been married and divorced many, many times, and she's presently living with a man. And Jesus speaks to her. Now, he speaks to her about her life, but he speaks to her. He emphasizes the water, speaking of the spirit, speaking of the salvation that he has to offer. He's giving her hope. She's not leaving with head hanging, ashamed. She becomes a missionary to her village, the most unlikely missionary. So you want the Lord to deal with the issues of your heart? Open your heart up to him. How do you open your heart up to him? Read his word, pray. So Lord, you examine my heart. You know what's there. Lord, things that aren't right, please bring those things to the service. Please change me. You guys come on up. And the Lord will do it. Anyway, sorry I went long. You know, that's kind of a, a false apology, isn't it? I don't care that I went long. But I do, it, it's harder to sit there than to be up here. So, uh, let's stand. Father, if any are here, downstairs, upstairs, any watching online, Lord, that have not placed their faith in you, Lord, would you please get a hold of them? Lord, we know that you don't want any to perish, but you all want all to come to repentance. So Lord, would you please, if we are truly living in the last of the last days, would you please wash away any false hope that we might be holding on to? Would you please wipe away any kind of religious, you know, traditions that we're clinging to, that our hope is somehow wrapped up in a an experience or a baptism or, or something other than genuine faith in you. Would you please wipe those things away? And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would examine ourselves as Paul tells us to do to see if we're truly in the faith. And if we're not, Lord, that we wouldn't be embarrassed, but that we would be honest and that we would come to you and say, Lord, please save me. Lord, please change me. Lord, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. And then, Lord, we trust that if that happens, then we will do our due diligence and be people of your word, studying, be witnesses as you've called us to be, sharing the gospel. We'll be doing our part, and Christianity will become what you always intended it to be, a beautiful, wonderful, exciting adventure with ups and downs, with joy and sadness with Jesus at the center, always. In Jesus' name, amen.